Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Usually at the beginning of the year, we're talking about fun new food trends. But because of the pandemic, grocery trends are looking different this year. Instead of seeing large product lines or product innovations, there will be a focus on supply chain issues and keeping shelves stocked instead. We'll see changes in grocery store layouts, more plant-based items, and new functional foods and beverages. For more on what to look out for this year, we'll speak to Kara Rosenblum, registered dietitian and president of Words to Eat By. As a dietitian for the last 20 years, I love December, January time because I'm always looking at trends to see what new products are out there. And as I started writing for my 2021 trends report, there were so few new products because companies are distracted needfully on efficiency. There are so many little gaps and little hiccups in the supply chain everywhere along from the actual manufacturing, even getting parts to do manufacturing, to getting things to the grocery store and then sales in grocery store. The coronavirus has put everything into a tailspin. So we're really seeing something different this year for the first time ever. And that's that the idea of getting products on the shelf period is more important than new products. And I've never seen that before in my history. And one of the big things that we've seen throughout the pandemic really is companies cutting back on the number of products they are offering. We saw that with meat processing plants. There weren't as many cuts available. I think in your article, you mentioned a soup company dropping their varieties down from 80 down to 40, which is exactly. a ton. You know, So these are some of the things we're seeing. There is this sort of overall idea that if you're going to get products to store shelves, you've got to get the most important products and the ones that sell the best. So rather than having a variety of 80 soups, can we pick the top 40 that are the best sellers? Or rather than having, you know, 300 varieties of chips and crackers and all these things on store shelves, there's an efficiency by saying, you know what, let's look at the products that sell the best and let's focus on those and make sure we can get those to shelf instead of ensuring that there's hundreds of SKUs available. We just want to make sure we can get some on store shelves rather than hundreds of other things. So experts think that the supermarkets themselves will look differently. The layouts will be differently. I think one person you spoke to said that a lot of them might implement a reservation model where the front and the back of the store look differently. How does that work? So I spoke with Phil Lempert, who is a food industry analyst. He works with many different grocery stores and big food companies. And he was telling me what he's hearing from them. One of the things that grocery stores have found is that consumers have a lot of anxiety, of course, of going into a grocery store. Some people aren't wearing masks properly. Some people aren't wearing masks at all. And so there's a bit of a fear and an anxiety when they're shopping about their safety. So they want to either get in and out as quickly as possible, or they want to do online delivery or online or Instacart or one of those sorts of curbside options. So what he has found is some of the grocery stores have said they're now going to institute a reservation model where similar to a restaurant, you book in advance and you have a time slot and that will help them limit the number of shoppers that'll be in the store at any one time. He also is noting that some companies are going to start to change the layout of their store so that people can still shop for fresh foods like fruits and vegetables and their cuts of meat. They can still browse and pick what they want. 
But that packaged item, so, you know, anything from toilet paper to breakfast cereal to canned goods will be in the back of the store and that'll be picked and packed for you while you shop, which would cut down on the amount of time people have to spend in the grocery store and make it more efficient. And he also mentioned those might not be picked and packed by humans. That might be robotic in the future. Yeah, I mean, he said that it could cut the average grocery shop time of 22 minutes down to about 10 minutes. Right. which is beneficial on all parties, it looks like. The other thing that we've seen this trend going on for a long time is more plant-based items on the shelves. This is just kind of accelerating it. And an interesting thing that I didn't know, I haven't seen just yet, there's blends of these things too. Let's say on milk, you can get a 50-50 cow's milk and almond milk blend. The extension of the plant-based stuff is continuing. Exactly. And I find that there are many companies who are experts in animal-based products, companies who are, you know, dairy or milk-based, and they're seeing a huge drop in their sales because so many people are looking for plant-based alternatives. And they're probably saying to themselves, if we don't start doing something plant-based, we're going to lose out. And I think that's where a lot of these blends are coming from. It's to continue to move their products when they're finding such a decrease in their sales and an increase in the sales of plant-based. But plant-based is met with a lot of controversy as well because a lot of the products that are coming out use the word plant-based to almost give it a health halo to make it seem very healthy that it comes from plant when what's actually being made is a highly processed or ultra-processed food made of protein isolates and powders and they're kind of moving away from being actual plants at this point. So, you know, a chickpea is a plant, broccoli is a plant, but isolated pea protein burgers, that's no longer really a plant. And the last thing that we're seeing is functional foods and beverages, one that you should be careful for, too. You know, make sure to check out the full list. These are things that are enhanced with CBD is really popular, but it could be a range of things. There are different companies that are adding vitamins or minerals or other kind of supplements to their foods. And for certain people, if you're taking supplements like actual pills or liquids, you're actually taking supplements, you may be getting too much of certain vitamins and minerals. So it's just sort of a reminder that too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Kara Rosenblum, registered dietitian and president of Words to Eat By. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Now that we have vaccines rolling out and we've been dealing with the pandemic for about a year now, we're trying to learn about the origins of the coronavirus that has caused this global pandemic. A team of scientists from the WHO is beginning an investigation as to how it has emerged. While the leading theory is that the virus jumped from bats to humans, another theory posits that it could all have been an accident, a terrible accident. A virus made more infectious in a lab through something called gain-of-function research. We still don't know the true origins of the virus, but it's important to know to help prevent the next pandemic. For more on this lab leak hypothesis, we'll speak to Nicholson Baker. He's the author of 17 books and contributor to New York Magazine. I guess I'm puzzled like everybody else. If there's something terrible that happens that convulses the entire world, you want to know where it came from. And I just happened to have written a book about, well, about about germ warfare in the Korean War and whether or not the United States had used biological weapons in a small way in that war, in an experimental way. So my mind was filled with lab accidents. There were many accidents in the United States when people were trying to concoct some of these germ weapons, which may or may not have been used in that time. So I was just thinking of all that. Suddenly, we're all in the middle of this catastrophe and asking where it came from is not 
an impermissible question. It's in a way the crucial question because you have to know what you're dealing with. If you're dealing with something that, although it was originally natural, diseases are natural, but was modified in some way in a laboratory as part of a well-intentioned experiment to make a vaccine of some kind against all sorts of coronaviruses, which is one of the research programs that was going. That's a different kind of organism than an organism that has evolved zoonotically in the wild. And I don't, I don't pretend that I have evidence because there has been no real investigation. What I have is a series of complicated moments that are really weird, you know, and then I have what other people have suspected themselves. And so that I try to give the reader enough to chew on that he or she can make her own decision. And let's talk about some of the hypothesized origins, right? So we know a lot of people say they think it jumped from animals to humans in this wet market in China. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in that sense. You also write about gain-of-function experiments, which is kind of what you're alluding to right now, where we get these viruses, we try to work with them, see what makes them tick, make them more transmissible so that we can plan for it in the future, you know, if a pandemic breaks out, we already have some experience. We know what to do with it. And there's some evidence that could point to this as well. Explain a little bit what these gain-of-function experiments are like. Sure. Well, first, let's give full attention to the dominant theory, because I'm offering something that is a definitely a minority view, and people should know that. And also should know that although I speak for some scientists, many, many scientists think that I'm doing something that is both irresponsible and wrong-headed, you know. <laughs> right. So so be sure that your listeners know that what I'm saying is a minority view. But the majority view, the zoonotic idea, is that it's a bat disease, and I agree with it, but it's a disease that bats carry a lot of these coronaviruses, and somehow or other, the supposition is that a bat was infected by two different kinds of coronavirus and that a recombinant event happened and they developed this highly, highly infectious kind of virus the bat did and then it somehow it hopped to a human being and in southern China where the bats are and there was no outbreak of disease down there and then somehow that human being went to Wuhan and the disease just took off. The other zoonotic hypothesis is that the, the bats infected an intermediate animal, say a pangolin, with this coronavirus. And the pangolin was simultaneously infected with a different coronavirus. And there was the recombinant event happened there. So that's the belief that it happened in the wild with any human meddling and all that. My belief is a little bit different. And it has to do with the fact that for the past 15 years or so, in America especially, there's been a lot of government money has been spent in trying to come up with ways to be prepared for new emergent diseases. And then to do that, you have to try to look ahead at what nature might throw at you. So in American laboratories, virologists would take a virus and then change it a little bit so that it was more infectious to humanized mice that exhibited some of the characteristics of human beings. And so that work has been going on. What's different is that that work started to go on in China. And China has the largest, in this laboratory in Wuhan, has the largest inventory of obscure bad viruses on the planet. 
and one of them is the closest virus in its sequence to the coronavirus that is now causing us so much trouble. And that's why attention, obviously, focused on this laboratory. You mentioned vaccines and trying to kind of create this platform where we can have these vaccines pumped out a little faster. That's kind of what happened with these mRNA vaccines. They were able to sequence the genome of the virus and apply that to these mRNA vaccines. Those are the most, according to the clinical trials, the most successful ones that we're rolling out right now. So in a sense, this platforming has worked on all that. You did mention, obviously, about the lab in Wuhan and the United States has a bunch of similar labs, but we kind of suspect it came out of this area. And I think even one of the principal people that worked at the lab, when they started hearing about this virus, they said, wow, that sounds kind of like one of the ones that we have in our lab. As you mentioned, they house this other virus that is very, very similar to it. So that is, I think, a piece of not evidence like a lab notebook or something, but it's interesting that Xi Zhongli, who is a distinguished, hardworking, I'm sure earnest Chinese scientist who works at this new high-level virology lab in Wuhan, was told that there was this new strain of very bad kind of respiratory disease. And her first thought was, oh my God, is it from our lab? And then she looked at it, she looked at the sequence, compared it with her database and thought, phew, okay. And she said to the interviewer, this was a piece in Scientific American, I was so relieved, I couldn't sleep a wink. Well, that the importance of that is that her first thought was the kinds of experiments that I'm doing, the kinds of bad viruses that I'm storing are like this. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Right. She worked for years to prove in collaboration with an American scientist, Ralph Barrick, that it was possible to have a direct infection that would go directly from horseshoe bats to human beings without an intermediary. That was one of the things that they were proving, and they would prove that by kind of turning up the dial on these viruses and making them more infectious to the kinds of human tissues that they were likely to encounter, especially the human airway tissue. So they're experiments that are going on funded by the National Institutes for Humanity in North Carolina, in other labs in the United States, and in Wuhan, all funded by American science, the American government scientific establishment, to determine whether there was a way to tweak a certain bat virus, tweak the spike protein of this thing, in order for it to be more easily infectious in human airways. And that just gives me a cold chill because right. that's just not a good idea. And other people have done a good job explaining this problem. But I just felt it was useful to put it all together in one place, which is that there were very smart, very highly credentialed American scientists in 2014, 2015, 2016, saying over and over again, don't do this kind of experiment. This is called a gain-of-function experiment. In other words, don't invent new diseases, new variant strains right. of highly infectious diseases and test them out and see if they're highly infectious because creating a threat in the laboratory is also just simply creating a threat. And laboratories are run by human beings and leaks happen and stuff gets out. And I want to reiterate what you said. You know, you're not saying this is the truth. This is exactly what happened. You're just kind of putting a lot of information together so people can make those determinations on their own. That's why we have scientists 
with the WHO that are going to China, attempting to go to China to look into mm-hmm. these origins. So I appreciate the fact that you made that very clear. And you're right throughout our history, and you detail some of this in the article. We might not have time for it right now, but you detail right. how throughout our history in these labs and things like that, these things have gotten out. Maybe not to large extents or anything, but there have been some accidents in that sense. So Nicholson, in the last minute or two that we have here, if you can yeah. just at the very end of your article, you have a piece, you write, so how did we get this disease, the transmission of it? Yeah. If you can summarize yeah. that for us very briefly at the end right here, I'd really appreciate that. Sure. First of all, we're not trying, there's no reason to demonize China in this. If this is a mistake that happened, it's a mistake that happened in collaborations. A lot of different people, scientists internationally made this mistake. And so it's not something that you want to just point at China and use it as some way to demonize a country. That's a terrible mistake. What happened in 2012, I think it was, some miners were put to work in an abandoned copper mine shoveling bat guano in southern China, way down by the border. And they shoveled this bat guano for seven days and they got sick, really, really sick with an undiagnosable lung disease. Three of them died. And samples of their sickness went back to the lab at Wuhan. Also, the scientists from Wuhan went down to that copper mine and sampled the bats in that copper mine. It was heavily infested with bats, and they brought back a lot of bat samples. And one of those bat samples was called RATG13, which stands for Rhinolophus affinus, which is the name of the bat, TG, which is Tongwan, which is the place the mine was, 13, which is 2013. That was that one of their several expeditions. Okay, that bat virus is as proclaimed by the chief scientist virologist in Wuhan, Xi Zhongli, is the virus most closely allied to the current human coronavirus. So sitting in their laboratories and taken out of the freezer several times in Wuhan was this bat virus that is the most closely related organism. So obviously proximity is a massive thing. If, if in the center of this city, where the virus broke out is the thing most closely related to it, and it's nowhere else in the world except in a tiny copper mine down in Tongwan. That means if you are a self-respecting scientist, you have to knock on the door of that laboratory as soon as possible. And instead, there has been no investigation. It's not that it's proven. It's not that it's absolutely true. It's just that it's a scientific possibility. And China has limited their own scientists in looking into the origins. You know, there's a lot that's been happening throughout this whole year. And obviously, we're distracted. We were distracted with trying to get better, with trying to get the vaccines working. You know, mm-hmm. so now that we have that, it is time to kind of go back and look at the origins. And there's a lot of questions. And that's why I really enjoyed reading your article so much, because you raise a lot of questions. And that's what we need right now. We need to go through them try to get those answers and find out what really happened. So like I said, I suggest everybody check it out. Nicholson's article, it's very thorough and there's a lot of stuff to think about. Nicholson Baker, author of 17 books, contributor to New York Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. It was a pleasure. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.